right now at Honda, find your kind of value with a low finance rate offer on selected Civic hatch and sedan models. There's never been a better time to get into a Civic. So talk to your local dealer and let's help you into a Honda today. T's and C's apply. Ends August 31st. See website for details. You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Hello, listeners. You're back with the Batuta Advocate News Hour on Desert Rock FM, recording live from Koala Studios in downtown Batuta. I'm Clancy Overall. And my name is Errol Parker. We've just pulled back in from Rocky Beef Week. We've had a good time up there with the nation's proud primary producers. And judging by the luxury four-wheel drives lined up on the oval of Rockhampton High School, things are going just fine in the cattle game. Yes, yes, indeed. As well as all the uh, RB Sellers shirts and, and the like. A lot of toys on display up there in Rockhampton. Things are looking good. Uh, we were happy to be up there and see that. But let's move on with the show. Well, today we have a very special guest. We have a sitting federal MP and counterterrorism expert, Dr. Anne Ali who said she'll speak quite freely about some of her colleagues and political opponents in Canberra, as well as the comparatively different road she's taken into politics. Yes, but first, there's been a few news stories around town that we'll need to get into. A ram raid on a prominent tobacconist outlet in the Flight Path District has been foiled after a failed attempt at pulling the ATM out of the store with a chain left behind a bull bar that was wedged in the facade of the arcade shop front. Yes, Bevan Hughes of West Batuta Hills was identified around 17 minutes later after police on the scene recognised the licence plate still attached to the hopper knocker that came off from a car registered to his name. Poor old Bevan, we've always worried about him and he's uh, back in the shit. He's looking at doing another stint in the pen and might make it home for Christmas in 2020. Yeah, just after the uh, Tokyo Olympic Games. And we've got more breaking news coming out of the leafy exclusive enclave of Batuta Grove at the moment. It appears our humble outback town is hosting its first ever same-sex divorce as Linda and Beryl Hurrigan hit the family course today to divvy up their assets. Yes, and out of his depth, 81-year-old magistrate Walter Carson has been given the daunting task of nutting out who is entitled to what in the recently separated couple's multi-million dollar catering business, as well as the three Subaru wagons, one Harley-Davidson fat boy and a 17-year-old German shepherd bitch named Porsche. And I've heard on the grapevine, Clancy, that Beryl has fired the first salvo across Linda's bow by burning their shared collection of Kookaburra hockey sticks. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. That's, uh, that looks like it's going to get messy. All the best to the lawyers and the magistrate, of course. The real winners in all this. Yes, indeed. And that's it for local news, Errol. We've had a fair bit going on in the sports world this week. Justin Langer's got the top job as the Aussie cricket coach. Ponting is going to be heading up the commentary team for Channel 7, is it? It is 7 this time around, yes. And league players are still trying to sell coke on the side. But uh, at least surprisingly, Israel Folau still doesn't like the gays. Yeah, he's still thumping the Bible, Clancy. Um, and I guess we're starting to wish that we never asked this Mormon footballer from Logan what his opinion on homosexuality actually was. Uh, we actually wrote extensively about this this week. Yes, how did that go? Falau apparently not okay with gay lifestyles, despite previously rocking the short back and sides, feathered blonde fringe. Yes, the Wallaby star has once again indicated that he is not a supporter of gay lifestyles and culture, despite the fact that he rocked that dashing little blonde number for a whole season back in 2014. Back in the golden age. Yes, yes. They brought a premiership that year. Falau insists that his absolutely fabulous hairstyle, which saw him go all the way to the silverware, had actually only been styled by heterosexuals, a claim that even his cauliflower-eared teammates are sceptical of. And one of Falau's teammates, a prominent country kid who's asked to remain anonymous for the time being, he told the advocate that he reckons it's bullshit. And he said to us, that salad has come straight out of Oxford Street. No way his barber was straight. Look at that precision. Yes, I've got uh, good reason to believe that that quote either came from Curtly Beal or Paddy Ryan, but I won't specify because that's divisive and it's the last thing rugby union needs in this country is people picking on townies. Elsewhere around Australia, there's been a bit of chat about this year's budget. Uh, we wrote a story about that one with one man who has had enough with funding other people's lifestyles. Yeah, that headline read, uh, the money needs to come from somewhere, says Liberal voter wearing tax-deductible RM William boots. 
The man we spoke to, William Hugo Smith Willingtonly, a 55-year-old corporate silver fox who thinks that the concept of public housing is just a result of learned helplessness, says he's all for a fair go, but some people are just leeches. He said to our reporters, Mate, it's all good and well to cry poor, but where's the money coming from? Riddle me that. Who's going to pay for these people to sit at home and do nothing because they've chosen to live that life? Well, that man uh, who grew up in what he says is one of the rougher parts of the North Shore down in the United States of Sydney explained to one of our reporters that it's not hard to get a decent pair of boots on your feet and find a bit of work. You just need to part with 500 clowns for some RMs and tell the ATO you need to impress your colleagues. He said he's gone and done the same with his daughter's Volkswagen Golfs and their two-bedroom units. Yes, it is just that easy, isn't it, Errol? And I would say that our large L liberal friend, what was his name again? Hugh, William Hugo Smith Willingtonly would, uh, would be very pleased with the recently announced cuts to the ABC. Yeah, I would say so too, comrade. Uh, we did write a story on those cuts, actually. The line on that story was, cuts to ABC funding unlikely to make Q&A any worse. We spoke to the head of the ABC, Michelle Guthrie, after the news filtered through that the national broadcaster was getting a bit of a caning. And she assured us that Q&A will still be the same petri dish of party line towing and unbalanced debate it has always been. She said, It won't be easy, but we are committed to delivering the Monday evening sense of dread you experience from watching a discussion on climate change between a professor of particle science and a man who has never won a game of noughts and crosses. And she also said that the hobbyless people who adore the smooth-talking Jones needn't worry that his head's going on the chopping block because no one who wears a suit to work down at the ABC is going to get a pay cut. Yes, of course, the public servants can't possibly afford to take home any less with them. Which brings me to our next guest, an academic type. In fact, a doctor. One so learned that she could definitely have made more money outside Canberra as a consultant or even a professor, but she's hesitantly made a run of politics and she's here today to talk about it. And she's just walked through the door. Here she is, Dr. Anne Ali. Let's get into it. Well, Ali Bombay. Ali, Ali, Ali. <laughs> Kill him, Ali. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. No, it's great to have you here. Um, Obviously, uh, Perth, Perthinian. Yeah, is that is that what you call them, Perthinians? Oh, Perthinese. 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 Perthiacs. Perthiacs. Perthonites. Perthonites. I like that one. Yeah, yeah that that works. But yes, Anne, Anne Ali, mm. MP. That's me. Thank you for joining oh. us. Uh, Thank you. It's uh, it's great to have again a uh, sitting. Member of Parliament. I thought you were going to say sitting duck. Sitting duck. Okay. <laughs> Great to have a sitting duck here. Well, yeah, I guess you are. You are <laughs> in a degree, you know, to a degree on this podcast. But like I said, it's great to have a uh, member of Parliament with a, you know, a background yeah, and a career not in politics. That, that's not in politics. Yeah, we need more of us. Mind you, a lot of people would say that your background is political, according to you know maybe the Murdoch Press. You yeah. Are, yeah, people like to politicise what I used to do, but I was very apolitical. Actually, I had no um, interest in politics, no. And so so coming into politics, it's all been kind of new, and I'm like, what's that and what's that and what does that mean and what are you doing here and why are we doing this? So, yeah, completely an outsider, really. Counterterrorism was yeah. was where you ended up prior thing. to politics. Mm. Um, can you just give us a quick rundown of how you got there? Okay. How do Not I make the cops. this quick? <laughs> no. Um, okay, so I kind of by accident, really. So as the as the story goes, you were up in Bali um, mm. on a bit of a break, as every good <laughs> Perthonite does from time to time, it's, <laughs> with the energy drinks and you know, Kuda, braided hair. Getting it you're on in the Kuda. same time zone, you know, so yeah. it's all very. Very relative, no jet lag, no nothing, and um, and you got the call, yeah, uh, asking if you'd like to, yeah, if you'd like to be a politician. It goes a little bit back further than that because that was 2015. Yep, and 2015 was probably my my biggest year in terms of my um, academic and and uh, what I like to call I was didn't really like to call myself an academic, like to call myself a pracademic, so academic and practitioner in the kind of CVE counter-radicalisation space. So it was this, the peak of my career. I got invited to the White House in February, um, you know, nearly froze my fingers off over there. Um, back, in, back at the White House in June with a group of students, then I got this um, invitation to attend the Club de Madrid 
which is not a disco, calm down. Um, Sounds pretty fun. It is. It, it <laughs> does sound fun, but it wasn't. Um, <laughs> and uh, to then speak at the Club de Madrid with, with the UN Secretary General and then from there going on to UN talks in Vienna and participating in UN talks in Vienna. Um, had really high hopes for this, but within half a day became really disillusioned with the whole process because here were all of these people who were either in power or had, had once been in power, and to me they had squandered. They had squandered all of that power, and instead here they were put together in a room and there was uh, you know, finger-pointing and blaming and yelling and no one could come to any kind of consensus on how we deal with terrorism and, and radicalisation. Um, so when it was my turn to stand up and speak at the end of this, this two days, I, I told them so. Um, I don't think they'll have me back. Um, <laughs> and then about three weeks later, I went to Vienna for UN talks, walked out of there and just shook my head and said, you know, nothing's going to change. I'm going to come, come home to Australia and nothing's going to change because there's just no political will. And I said to my husband at the time, I said, I'm done. I'm, I'm going to find something else to do. I'm done with this. I'm done with all the talk fests. I'm done with all, all the policy discussions and all the work that's being done and nothing ever changes. He just looked yeah. at me and said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. Um, and then coming back, lying yep. on the beach in Bali, there's that phone call. Yep. Well, as fate would have it, mm. in February of 2015, another very special and rare event happened in Australia that was spearheaded mm. by a little-known Western Australian <laughs> lower house member called Luke Simpkins. Um, I know him. From I know him. the electorate of Cowan. Yeah. And... He put a spill motion against... He had his 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, he the, uh, He put the first spill motion against then Prime Minister Tony Abbott, yep. which resulted in Tony Abbott winning 61 to 39. And a little bit more about Luke Simpkins, you know, as we all know, his, mm. he did share the parliamentary lunch table with, you know, the, the likes of Corey Bernardi, yeah. um, Hasty, Abetz, you know, all the, all the most charming members. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of the lower house. Because he was charming too. He was. It's something that could only happen if if it happened in real life, you know. Mm. You, you wouldn't believe that it could happen. Mm. But as the, the politics of WA has, has told us, you know, it's, it's a very strange place mm. politically. And he was an outspoken conservative, you know, he was against... Halal. Halal. He wanted to ban the burqa. He spoke out in support of sleep deprivation as a torture technique because that for always terrorism works. suspects. Mm. And then Knocks he went to the election up against me, you, and he <laughs> lost. I know. So, it was sorry, so weird. So, can you talk us through that day in yeah. July two thousand and sixteen, where Luke had to eat his own shoes and. <laughs> and his hat, and, and his hat. <laughs> with and a bit of salt to, on it, like yeah, Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> and, he, and he had to hand the Can keys over shit. to his <laughs> to his blue ribbon electorate to yeah. a, a Muslim woman. Yeah, you know, it was really weird because you could not get a more chalk and cheese opponent yeah. in the election. Yeah. This tall, um, tall white ex-military bloke and some short brown woman with uh, with four university degrees. Um, and and I remember sitting there, and I, I had no idea what what in, what a, an election entailed. And in fact, when um, when I first got that phone call in Bali, and then I rang my son and I said, "Yeah, WA Labor's calling me. What do you think they want?" And he goes, "Oh, mum, maybe they want you to run in the next election." This is me. <gasps> There's an election, so I had absolutely no idea. But it, it was such a stark contrast between the two of us, um, and and. A lot of people predicted that I wouldn't win. They said it'd be close, but it would ultimately um, fall to Luke because WA does tend to be quite a blue state, quite conservative. I don't know. I haven't done a complete analysis of, of, of what it was. I think that, that kind of that stark difference worked yeah. in my favour because there was this very obvious choice yeah. in yeah. terms of candidates and um, wasn't you know? Yeah, it yeah. wasn't short back and size number one. Yeah, short back and yeah, size number exactly. Two. Yeah. It wasn't like he was up against Kim Beasley. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or anyone else. Um, so yeah, it was it was very very 
very interesting of how it all panned out. But in the end, did win, but by a very small margin. Yeah. Um, I a, think a that wins he a win, was, a wins a win. Yeah, that's what's right. The, what's the demographics that. like of, of, of your uh, electorate? It's yeah. really diverse because, like, some suburbs have um, um, really high multicultural communica- communities in them, and um, some suburbs are lower socioeconomic. The biggest number of um, immigrants is from the UK. Right. Got quite a few white South African, mm. um, but also as ten- does all of WA. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm packing for Perth, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but I do have um, in some suburbs. I've got 10 percent Muslim population. Right. Yeah. Um, largest language spoken is Vietnamese. So some suburbs are really, really diverse in terms yeah. of uh, cultural and linguistic diversity, and, and others aren't. So it's a real mix, really. Uh, just, just going back to. Uh, you know, how you ended up in the multicultural kind of mm. arena, uh, affairs, that kind of stuff. Because I'm brown. Well, yeah, I mean, there is that. But also there's the uh, <laughs> the angle that there's the idea that, you know, and, and we hear particularly with Perth, there's an artist that talks a lot, uh, Abdul Abdullah. Yeah, I know him. He's a good guy. He says, and he, he, taught, he tells this story mm. that growing up, uh, he had older brothers mm. and his brother's upbringing was a lot different to his because they were pre-9-11. Mm. But he was a kid during 9-11 and you've got sons. Yeah. Was What was the perception of Muslims in, Merth, in Perth before 9-11? What was it? Was it, it was a bit eccentric. You know, you hear people say it was almost mm. like Hare Krishna. No one knew anything about yeah. these people. And then all of a sudden overnight politicised. Um, yeah, I've actually written about this. I've mm-hmm. actually written a, um, a few articles about like just tracing the trajectory of the um, consciousness about Muslims in the Australian uh, political sphere and, and public sphere and, and media sphere. And it really, I guess, it really started with the first Gulf War. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and if you went even further back than that, the Iranian Revolution as well, but the very, very um, narrow stereotypes with the Iranian Revolution and then came the first Gulf War. Um, so, yeah, there wasn't this real cognizance of what Muslims mm. do or who they are. A bit of an eccentricity more than anything. Yeah, it, it was. And um, and then comes 9-11 and people often talk about yeah, how 9-11 changed the world. I think it was more the response to 9-11 yeah. that changed, at least changed my world in terms of that, that suddenly it was like we were um, statues in a room that came to life mm-hmm. you know, and suddenly people noticed us and noticed what Muslims were and, and who they were and had this enormous amount of attention, but not good attention. It was negative yeah. attention. Um, so, yeah, it certainly changed the mood in Perth and um, where bef- where I, I think perhaps – and it's had an impact on, on first and second generation Australian Muslims too because it became the way for them to identify, whereas like my generation, we tended to identify more with our ethnic background, Egyptian or Lebanese yeah. or whatever. But the first and second generations um, tended to identify more than now with, with Muslims because that's how they were grouped yeah, They were right. and they were identified by their religion, not so much by their ethnicity yeah, sure. or their cultural heritage. Well, you hear Waleed refer to himself as Mediterranean, you know, as, uh, you know and, and, and as Egyptian, yeah, like technically, yes. Mm. Um, it's, not, it's not what comes to mind for everyone when they think Mediterranean, they think pasta and the like, but uh, Egypt mm. is not... The same as so many yeah. of these other countries that uh, people would um, associate in their minds. Yeah. Um, some Muslim, you know, communities. Yeah, because it's got that that um, long history and, um, you know, it's in Africa but it's also part of the Middle East and also part of like the Arab world. So, you know, rich DNA to choose from mm. whether you're Egyptian, Mediterranean, African, Middle Eastern, Arab. It's all there. Yeah. And do you find the, you said before, with the Muslims in your electorate, are you a, do you you lock them in as a vote or or, or there's criticisms coming from your own community at times? Oh, yeah, I get criticisms from everywhere. Yeah. It's like sitting duck. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, there are criticisms from within my own community um, because it's a diverse community. There's not, it's not a monolith, you know, not everyone agrees. It's like any kind of, any kind of community. So I have supporters, but I also have detractors. It's mm-hmm. just like anything else, really. Mm. Do, you, do you ever get the, uh, you know, from Egyptian community, she doesn't speak for us? Not so much from the Egyptian community. They're, they're more like, oh, we're so proud of you, yeah. you know. Um, but but from, cert- from certain segments of Muslim communities, definitely. But I always say, well, I've never claimed to speak for you. I'm not in parliament as the, the member for Muslims. 
you know, would the member from Whistlam's please stop interjecting? Um, that's not my role there. My role is as, a, as the representing Cowan, representing a an electorate within um, WA and ensuring that their best interests are presented in Parliament. So where does that place you inside the ALP? You know, because it's, it's mm. a union... I mean, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a party that, yeah. uh, that's, that's quite factionalised. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got your, uh, your shortens and um, all the other union heavies you mm. know, on one sort of lunch table. You've got Albo and Tanya and all the other guys who like to party a bit on one lunch table. Mm. You're the no voters from Victoria. Mm. You yeah. Know, you got, you, you got, and, you got um, a diverse, you got a diverse community. <laughs> That's so, right. <laughs> so where would you kind of sit in the Labor Party? Because I kind of come through an, an, an unorthodox path to yep. politics, I guess. And there are a couple of – there are a few of us like that, you know, the ones who have kind of had the tap on the shoulder, who have done something else before and then come into, into politics who aren't, I guess, career politicians. So it is an unorthodox path. And so a lot of what I've been doing in my first two years is in terms of if that of that is really learning about the party machinations and how yeah. it works. And I guess, um, you know, finding my place, plug for the book, plug for the book, um, yeah. finding my place within that, within that structure and how that works and, um, you know, what are the pathways to achieving things and making the kind of change that I want to see as well. Um, so, yeah, it's... It, I guess when when you do have such a diverse grouping like that, you you gravitate towards the people who share your values, yeah. um, and you have you have you, you form friendships. But you form friendships over the 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 divide as well. Like I count Andrew Broad as a as, as a good friend in Parliament. Um, our, we don't agree on our politics. Our yeah. politics are different, but we're mates. Mm. Um, and some More of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, did more more um, agreement on some some parts of politics with Warren, um, but certainly there are people you don't have to agree with their politics, but you can still form friendships and find connections. Yeah, because earlier this year we saw that Albo he was up in the top end with Bob Catter, and they were uh, <laughs> hanging out. You know, did they have a, a lucid conversation? I've never had a lucid conversation with Bob Catter. Well, we spoke to uh, Glenn Drury, the preference whisperer, mm. uh, a few weeks ago, and he said that Bob Catter is the only person he's ever met who can interrupt himself. <laughs> Bob Catter come up to him and he goes, oh, you've got, to, you've got to hear about what they're trying to do in Queensland with the Aboriginal housing. And I said, oh, oh thanks, but I'm not from Queensland. He goes, yeah, but you're Aboriginal. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Holy shit! <laughs> oh, that's. Uh, we also. Oh, heard I think it, you mean Linda. <laughs> he also brought up. Uh, we heard he brought up uh, ethanol during his um, Anzac Day address. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he didn't bring up anyone being eaten by crocodiles, did he? No, no I don't okay. know. Who knows? But, yeah, I mean, we always we always get to, every guest we have, we end up talking about Bob because. He is one of the live wise, one of the few characters down there. I oh, guess. he certainly brings oh. um, brings something different to Parliament. But there's lots of people down, you know, in the more cosmopolitan parts mm. of Australia that, that kind of think he's a bit eccentric. But you know, if if any of these people from the Big Smoke ever went up to up to the towers, up to <laughs> up the Curry, mm. up to Julia Creek, they'll find that that Bob is representative is a great. <laughs> An honest and true representative of his yeah. electorate, which is why he won 80% of the vote last yeah. time. I think, you know, we need more diversity in Parliament, yeah. whether it's diversities of, you know, um, rural regional representation. Or, he's Arabic too. Yeah, yeah. yeah he is. In, in Arabic, we call him Qatar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's an H in there. Yeah. <laughs> A couple more A's. Yeah. Now, uh, you're obviously have a level of expertise and that may have been what piqued the attention of the Labor Party early days. Mm. You can offer legitimate advice on legitimate issues mm. and really real concerns. What's your take on how we have been handling uh, uh, young at-risk mm. kids with crazy ideas mm. uh, over the last few years? I don't think we've been doing it very well. I've, I've always said that our response has been very heavily on the side of legislative um, change and 
developing a legislative framework. Do you know Australia has the most legis- legislation around um, terrorism and acts related to terrorism than any Western country? Right. Really? Um, we have the most. We oh, have the right. broadest suite of legislation on terrorism and um, relating to terrorism than any other Western country, despite the fact that touch wood, we haven't experienced a mass casualty attack on our soil. So there's something to be said about that, that, that predominantly our response has been a hard response, a hard kind of legislative response, and we've really neglected the stuff that uh, that that affects social change, affects cultural yeah. change, um, that really deals with the, the, the mobilisation and the motivations and the grassroots issues. We don't have an equally strong civil society sector to deal with, with this and we haven't had that kind of attention. So I think we need to start balancing out now the soft and hard. We should have started a while ago, but I don't see it happening with this government, to be honest. Can you explain with your uh, education and mm. your expertise, mm. what? where's the disconnect between a kid from a family that has fled these kind of ideologies? How mm. in a generation does a kid then cling to that as mm. um, as his thing? Okay, so first of all, it's not always yeah, not first always and that. second generation who have come from those backgrounds. So, so the, the the question is then, how is this narrative, mm-hmm. um, the ISIS or Al Qaeda inspired narrative, how and why is it so influential on young people who have no connection to it? Yeah, you've got Jake Bellardi, young young kid from the burbs of, of Melbourne who went over and fought with ISIS. How are they connecting to, to that? But more recently there's been some really interesting studies. There was a book by a bloke called um, Olivia Roy called Jihad and Death. I don't recommend you read that on an aeroplane. Um, <laughs> but he looks very much into this phenomenon with second generation mm. and he talks about a culture of violence yeah. and, and it's the culture of violence that's attracting them. I think that's part of it, but I don't think that's the full picture. I think a lot of it has to do um, also with, yes, there's an attraction to violence, there's an attraction to fighting, there's this kind of victim identity that appeals to a lot of people. And, in fact, if you look at marketing studies, uh, the victim frame is one of the most powerful frames for mobilising action in people. Everyone wants to be a victim because they feel like they're missing out if they're not a victim. They're missing out on something that that victims get. So the so this um, just look at Twitter, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Victim identity, this culture of violence, and the attraction of violence of wanting to be a soldier and to fight for something that means something. Yeah. Plus, uh, one of the studies that I was doing was looking at the the histories of violent actors, violent jihadist actors specifically, and looking at if if there was a history of aggression. Mm-hmm. And around one-third have a history of aggressive behaviours or violent behaviours. So I came up with a theory called the rapid escalation of violence to explain why they become attracted to um, the, that next stage mm-hmm. of violence and, and why ISIS appeals or the narrative of ISIS appeals to them in that, in that kind of context. Yeah, because what happened with Jake Bellardi and mm. a few others is, um, is, is ISIS recruited them online yeah that's been um that's been something new that um all these you know broad reaching counterterrorism bodies uh the government bodies have had to attack mm. has it always sort of been that way has there been a different way to recruit the young people like we look back to how david hicks mm. how he found his way from mm. from adelaide to Kabul. you know mm. he obviously didn't get that information online so So two things. The first thing I want to say is even if we go way back to early terrorist movements, so the anarchist movement, the anarchist movement really took off with the introduction of the printing press because they were then able to distribute their propaganda worldwide and influence people through the printing press. So communication, being able to communicate with potential recruits, with groups of people who are going to be influenced by your narrative, has always been a part of terrorism. So it kind of makes sense that as technology progresses and we find new ways of communicating, so too would the way that terrorists um, recruit people, utilise those kinds of platforms as well. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we often hear these kind of um, unsubstantiated theories about online radicalisation. 
And every time there's a terrorist attack, you have some talking head come out and go, yeah, he was rapidly radicalised online or self-radicalised online. There's actually no consistent evidence to prove that. In most of the cases, I think there's just one case of somebody who was um, on uh, completely online. Yep. Most of them also involve some kind of social network, offline yep. as well. That's the thing. And one more thing with that as well, if you look at Jake's case, he put it out there. From a very yeah. young age, he was fascinated with he violent movements. He was a long-haired kid. Yeah. 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 yeah, the baby face, long-haired yeah. kid. From a young age, he was fascinated with violent movements, yeah, right. fascinated with violent movements. And in his own head, he justified it by saying these were brave men fighting for their rights. Mm. Yeah. So he had to put himself out there. Right? It's not uh, – uh, and, and he made – a, an, an effort to contact someone who could help him, yeah, right. who could recruit him. It's not like there's all these young Muslim men sitting around in front of a computer with their mouths, um, with their mouths open, just waiting to be uh, reeled in. Yeah. There is um, a level of self um, self motivation. Yeah. Mm. Well, there is one talking head um, that always comes out when these things happen, and. Um, She's also in Canberra. Um, whenever there is a, a the minute you said she, I mean, I don't know who you're talking about. A very uh, you know is if there's violence and, yeah. and Islam involved um, on the popular and controversial breakfast television show Sunrise, yeah. they often have um, renowned terrorism and Islam expert Pauline Hanson on yeah. to make sense of it all. And to reassure the public that you know that, that there are people in Canberra who are working to to, to wear burkas in yeah. Parliament. Yeah, have you ever had any discussions with Pauline about you know your tertiary background in in, ter- yeah. in terrorism? And I had lunch with Pauline. Yeah, so I invited her out for lunch um, when I first got elected, and um, you know sat down and said to her, you know. Part of this really is that we're going to disagree on a lot. Let's make that clear. Even the probably on everything. Lunch. Yeah, <laughs> actually, we both had salad, um, <laughs> and 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 I just wanted to say to her, you know, I just want to make sure that that disagreement is done in a, in a civil manner, yeah, and that it's respectful. But I did talk to her. I talked to her about my my research and um, my studies, and she said to me, she said, "Oh, I think you're wrong." I said, okay, why do you think I'm wrong? She goes, because on my Facebook page, people are saying this, this and this. And so I said to her, you do know Facebook is not a valid source of data. It's not a valid form of research. Um, You wouldn't be able to quote it in an academic paper. Yeah. I mean, if if some of my students had done that, I would probably (laughs) fail them. But, yeah. So, so, you know, it just shows that where people, you know, there's, and there's choice involved in here. You know, you have a choice as as, as um, a leader, as somebody who is in, in parliament. Yeah. You can choose to be populist and uh, gather your information and develop your policies based on your Facebook posts and mm-hmm. what's on there. Me jerks. And- yeah, or you can do your due diligence and yeah. and research the facts. Because there's, there's another person who is opposite you in the lower house mm. um, who's also qu- quite anti-halal and whatnot who just happened to travel to Malaysia to have halal surgery a lap band <laughs> where in as he was oh. recovering in hospital he was enjoying his halal water halal water his uh, halal lamb cutlets I wanted, to, his, I wanted to ask him if the doctor said Allahu Akbar before he cut yeah. him <laughs> <Have you laughs> then it would be really halal so, have you taken him to lunch at um, a steak with George? No, no, I haven't had a steak with George, but I do talk to George, and um, you know, again, one of those people that I disagree with on a whole lot of stuff. Um, but I have a bit of fun with George, you know. Yeah. The fact that you are the first Muslim woman in in Parliament, mm-hmm. do you find a few cultural gaffes um, being made? You know, to yeah. Did you, yeah, can you tell us about some of the things that <laughs> Just are, you know. Just a few. Well, I think one of the big things is there's, this, there's, there's really not, like this report that came out from um, the Human Rights Commission recently that, that looked at the representation of people from non-Anglo, non-European backgrounds in 
um, in positions of leadership and including in, in parliament. So the Australian population is around 21% of people who come from a non-Anglo background. In other words, visibly visibly different different ethnic minorities, whatever label you want to give to it, really. Um, and in Parliament, in all of Parliament, all the backbenchers, it's only 4%. So I'm one yep. of that 4%, which doesn't make us very many. On the front bench of the government, 0%. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So we're making policies for 21% of the, of the, of the population without any real informed um, debate or discussion or input on how those policies might impact on that twenty one percent. So yeah, there have been gaps, and it's and it's it's across it's across both both parties. Let me say, yeah. um, there have been gaps. So like we'll put out a statement on 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 women, for example, and there's absolutely nothing on women with disabilities or women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds or women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds who have disabilities. You know, um, there are those things. There was that, there was that famous one with Brody where um, I just given an uh, – this was in the context of the 18Say um, yep. debate and I'd just given an example of, um, of when I was 10 years old and, and uh, there used to be this, this – um, girl at school, my sworn enemy, made me her sworn enemy, who would just um, consistently sneer at me and and spit in my face about being a Muslim. And Brody came up, he goes, when I was at school I used to get wedgies too, Anne, and I said, yeah, but you know what, Brody, you didn't get them because of the colour of your skin. And uh, you didn't get them because of, of, of who you are, mate. <laughs> because you're a door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's, there's, there's this real lack of understanding. And, and really when we talk about like multiculturalism and cultural diversity, it's always about migrants and refugees. Mm, yeah. It's not really about the character yeah. of Australia. Yeah, or yeah. the seven generations in Chinatown, you know. Absolutely. But, but oh, I'm, I'm talking also about socially. Do you, know, do you find that there's these stale male pale ministers that treat you like you're from Mars? Exotic. Yeah. Like an iguana. <laughs> yeah. You're so exotic. Yeah, like an iguana or a giant penis-shaped flower. <laughs> a focus on, on your appearance and what you wear and, you know, your curly hair and, and all of that kind of stuff. I'm kind of used to it, really, um, but it is it is quite. I think the other one is I often get mistaken for Linda Burney, mm. and she often gets mistaken for me because, like, we're the two brown <laughs> women, so obviously we must be the same person. Plus, people have never seen us in the same room together, so. Mm. Right. I tell you how many people said I love that photo of you and Warren Edge, <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's Linda. <laughs> so you've got a book out, yeah, through Harper Collins. How, how was that? To finally sit down and write something that wasn't academic, you know, mm, like it was hard. A book that wasn't about, mm, you know, terrorism and special forces and mm. Tom Clancy and stuff like that. <laughs> Did you ever use your son as a reference for a lot of the, the a lot of the, uh, you know, uh, stories you were saying in there? Yeah, yeah, they, they, they play a big role in it. My boys play a big role in the book. Oh, look, when when they rang me, when the publisher rang me and goes, "Oh, we want you to write a book," I'm like. Great. I've got a book on terrorism ready to go, 100,000 words, two weeks. And they were like, nah, we want you to write a book about you. And I'm like, nah, and I write books about me. I said, what am I going to write about that? I sit around eating Doritos and watching trash TV every night. Nah. Um, but, you know, eventually I said, yep, and started writing it. And it's actually really con- confronting. You kind of um, open up a lot of wounds of your, your background and how you, how you got to where you are as well. And just choosing what goes in the book and what do I want to keep yeah. for myself was a big one as well. But I remember, um, I'd, and I'd never written, I've never written anything that wasn't technical before. And I yeah. consider myself a good technical writer. Yeah. I can write a good academic piece. So starting this, I was sitting there and I wrote it all on planes, 29 chapters on 29 flights. And the whole time I'm writing it, I'm going, this is crap. Nobody's going to want to read this. Um, but of course, I was comparing myself to Shakespeare. So, um, yeah. yeah, it was it was it was hard because I didn't have that confidence in writing yeah. something that wasn't about terrorism and non yeah. that wasn't technical, yeah. um, but also because it was confronting. It's confronting to look back on your life and where you've come from and put all of that out there. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about your your kids. What's going on there? You got boys too? I got two boys. I yeah. got Adam, who's with, with with me here today, and um, Kareem, who lives in Melbourne. Um, 
cool. Yeah, they were in their in their trendy in their twenties. Cool I'm waiting. For, I'm waiting for grandkids, but apparently I'm not getting any anytime soon. <laughs> so um, that's <laughs> what is it? What is it in, uh, in Egyptian? It's not. It's not obviously Baba. What, 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 What's grandma? Yeah, Teta. 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 Like batuta. Yeah, right. I've got a confession to make. I always thought batuta came from the Arabic word the patata, which means potato, but apparently it's not. It's batuta. Yeah, yeah. And it means something completely I different. Think waterhole, I think. Yeah, I think. Is it? It comes from the mythical language, which is um, the clan in Batuta. Channel um, country, western yeah, Queensland. It's. Um, ah. It's it loosely translates to waterhole, mm. and there is a big nice waterhole um, just out the front of the mm. pub. And it's called Batuta, the Batuta waterhole. It's, it's called the, the Tita waterhole. Oh wow! Yeah. What's your what? What was the word you said though? Patata. Do you ever say that to Peter Dunn? <laughs> <laughs> Don't give me ideas. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about Peter Dunn. Uh, Is he hard to work with? He has got he has got this like inimitable and unenviable capacity to make everything that comes out of his mouth racist. (laughs) Pretty much. Um, Well, he's a highway cop. Uh, (laughs) License and registration, um, please. Yeah, you know we are. Yeah, I don't know. Look, obviously, we don't agree on pretty much everything. Um, I don't have much to do with him, to be honest. So I can't make a judgment on his on his character. I can only judge by what he says and in the context of the things that he says. And does he say uh, shit about you? Does he? Uh, I, I don't know. If he is, I'm not paying attention. So keep going, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're just wondering because obviously you are. If if Labor, you know, wins the next election, you could be looking good for his job. With, with your expertise anyway. Yeah. You know, yeah. in terms of security and, and that kind of stuff. So you yeah. are an authority on a lot of the shit he's talking about. Mm. Does does he ever dismiss you in that regard or you don't engage? Yeah, see, he's more like front bench. And so in, in Parliament, the front bench kind of tends to tic-tac with each other and us back benches just, ever, you know. Throw peanuts? Work on, yeah, throw. <laughs> just kind of hang out. So, so yeah, yeah. I, haven't re- I, I really haven't had much to do with him, to be honest. Well, he... he is- certainly didn't place his hand on a Quran when he took up his job, did he? No, I think uh, he saw mine and, and ran away. No, he didn't, but I did. You did? <laughs> that was a hard decision. Yeah? It was. It was a tough decision for me. Uh, it was something I grappled with. Had anyone done that before? You mean the first Muslim woman had... Yeah. No, Ed, Ed Husik did it. Yeah, Ed right. Husik did his father's one. And, and in actual fact, I had originally planned not to. Yeah. I had originally planned to take a, is it a pledge a pledge and not an, an oath on yeah. on a religious text. Uh, Gillard store. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I I do do believe in the separation of religion yeah. and politics. So we're talking about, you know, the, the, there's things like that that you um you know, you afforded the opportunity in Australia to be able yeah. to do that on the Quran and, and stuff like mm. that and but but then again you do get people like uh Beteta Dutton, Dutton, who uh, you know are are quick to ostracise those things outside of uh, Canberra. Mm. And one particular one was the um, when he started teeing off on like second, third generation Lebanese people. Like that was well before your time; those decisions were being made. So Mm. you know, and 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 particularly coming from Brisbane, where you've got um, you know iconic Lebanese Australians, you've got Stefan. Ackery, mm. you know, Napoleon hair products is mm. the pride of Brisbane. Is a second generation Lebanese man. You've got, you know, yeah. you've got plenty of. And wasn't Crazy John crazy from there John, as well? Uh, crazy John Ilhan, yeah. 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 You got, you got a lot of people. Hazamel Maz. We've got, you know, yeah, a, a the, whole. He is, yeah, the highest point scorer ever in the NRL has never had a beer at the end of a game. <laughs> there you and, go. and he played during Ramadan yeah. on Sunday yeah. afternoons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In oh, no, fucking oh. North Queensland. Yeah. <laughs> and they used to ask him too at the end of the game. It's like. How is that? He just says, oh, it's all right, but I'm a bit hungry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm starving. Wait for sundown. <laughs> um, but, but do you find that, that kind of thing will, that kind of shit, do you find has an effect on young kids? Absolutely. 100% has, a, has an effect on, on young kids because privilege of having a platform, right? Privilege of having a platform, even if it is 2GB. Right, and and being able to use that to put out Miranda ideas. Miranda Live. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and being able to use that to put put out ideas. And I don't know if he does it consciously or not. He recognises this this immense privilege and and how that that affects um, and can affect society and social change and cultural change and how we define ourselves as Australian or whether he's just doing it because it's politically expedient. I think that it's a bit of both. I think that it is for him politically expedient but I also think he holds deep-seated views on these things that that fuel that kind of rhetoric as well. Um, And it does have a a huge impact. It has a huge impact. When I was doing my, um, my research for my PhD, I did some interviews. I did 180 interviews actually but I did some focus groups as well with young, young Muslims. Um, and, and I had a group of young Muslim blokes in there and, you know, they were, yeah, bro types, you know. They were like masculine and... Um, Shaved legs. I didn't notice. Yeah, bro, alpha. Yeah, alpha. Mm. And and they broke down talking about how before 9-11 they really felt Australian and they knew where their place was and they knew who they were and then suddenly all of that was being questioned. Mm-hmm. All of that was being questioned and they were put in this position where they didn't know. They didn't know who they were supposed to be. People were telling them, you're not Australian, you're not Australian, you're un-Australian. And they, 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 they broke down in tears talking about this. And it has a huge impact for that generation who were, who were um, either young or born after 9-11 as well because they, they were kind of brought into this post-9-11 world where the, the us and them rhetoric and the, 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 political discourse on division mm-hmm. has really been used as, as dog whistling and the yep. politics of race has really become entrenched in in how we talk about these issues in Australia. Because you look at different migrant waves in Australia, you look at Sunnybank in, in Brisbane with mm. the Vietnamese community there and you look at Cabramatta in Sydney um, and then you, you just look at the Vietnamese where they mm. were vilified and, and yeah, uh, front totally. page news and, you know, admittedly there were some, um, some issues in their community, you know, sitting member of New South Wales was killed in, in all that yeah, kind of, you know, and, and that, that looked like the type of stuff that you could never get past. Mm. Um, and, the you know, the, the Arabic and, and Muslim community would almost, particularly the Lebanese, had almost had their decade. You yeah. know, they'd almost had their, you know, the, the wog decade yeah. where they kind of get picked on. And then 9-11 happened almost at the point where you're saying these kids felt like they were Australian. Mm. Uh, do you feel like if those towers hadn't gone down, no. we'd and, have a different, with different narrative? And there's an important point there because you said, you know, it's things that you get past, but how do you get past it? You get past it because another group comes up, yeah, right? right? You're replaced. Yeah. Is, is that, is that what you replaced. reckon happens? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, right. You're replaced by tomorrow's demons, right? Australia has yeah. this history yeah. of, and, and in a way we've kind of come to accept it and say, oh, you know, that's just that's just Aussies, you know, every migrant, we give them a bit yeah, of right. shtick and then, you know, it passes. So it's not it's not that we get used to them, it's because they get replaced. It's a, yeah, totally. Right. And and so, uh, you know, my constant argument is why do we why do we keep putting up with it? Why do we say it's okay? Oh, next, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's just something yeah. that we do to to waves of immigrants who come here. Shouldn't we be questioning why we do this? Yeah, why yeah, are we doing sure. this to people? Do you think that it was made that much harder and that much more grueling uh, for, you know, the, the Arabic kind of communities because of 9-11 as well? Was oh, yeah, 9-11 really, really, post 9-11 you had this conflation, right? Remember the Tampa incident? Mm. Remember the children overboard? Those people who mm. throw their children overboard when yeah. I want them in this country. It all turned out to be total bullshit. Mm. Nobody ever got really pulled up and hauled over the coals for all that bullshit. Yeah. And it really didn't get out there to the community that this was bullshit and there wasn't this outrage that they were that they were um, lied to mm. about children overboard. So there was that there was there became the conflation of the asylum seekers with criminal activity and terrorism and and it was politically on purpose. Mm-hmm. In 2001, John Howard rode to victory on a wave of fear. You know, it brought the election home for him to be able to say, uh, we decide who comes into Australia and the circumstances under which they come here by pointing the finger at and demonising yeah. and conflating all of those issues together. Yeah, do you do you find in terms of finding place? Mm. Do you find you I mean you've got you you know born in Cairo, mm. uh, back and forth to Cairo. You mm. kind of ended up in, as we discussed, all, all these different areas and led you to counter terrorism and then eventually politics. Have you found yourself getting emotionally invested in shit you never thought you would have even cared about 
in politics now? You, you yeah, call totally. Call to vote on sugar taxes <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, like little changes to legislative things. Um, yeah, but but the the good thing about parliamentary life is that you can continue to pursue the things that you are passionate about and that you're interested in. And in fact, when I first had that first kind of meeting about whether or not I would run for Cowan, I remember saying, why would I do this? I've got a great job. I've got a, uh, you know, a high-level career. Um, and the response was, because this is a different way for you to continue doing what you're doing. And I said, can you guarantee yeah. me that I can continue doing my work? And they said, yes, but it's a, it's, it'll just be from a different perspective. So there is that opportunity to do that. So I do that through being on the Law Enforcement Committee, um, on the Committee for Joint Standing Committee for Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade. I tend to, like, there's some people in Parliament who'll speak on anything, <laughs> anything, anything they'll get up and speak on it. I tend to try and only speak about the things that I'm passionate about, um, that have relevance to my electorate or that I know something about. So anything on cybersecurity, security, counterterrorism, I'll stand up and speak on um, because I think that I can make a, a valued and informed contribution to the debate. Anything to do with, you know, I was a single mum. I've lived on, on welfare. I know what it's like. It's bloody hard. So anything to do with that. I'll stand up and speak, plus anything that can fight this kind of demonisation of people who are on welfare as lazy shits Mm -hmm. who are on the dole, um, that stuff is important to me. I'm passionate about that stuff. Do you get on on well with Jackie? I do. Yeah. Jackie and I I get on very well. I've got a lot of respect for Jackie. She says some some stuff, but, you know, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll confront her. She's changed her tune on a few things as well in in times. Mm -hmm. Have you kind of... Yeah. Um, oh, no, I, look, I think I give credit to Jackie for that. Yeah. And I think she deserves credit for that. I've certainly had discussions with her, but I, I give credit to Jackie. She's smart. Mm. She's smart and she's passionate. Um, and I was sad to see her go. But um, yeah, she's, she's good. Yeah. We get on well. We joke a lot too. I think <laughs> everyone in Australia says that about Jackie. Yeah. Every, everyone yeah. says it. Uh, and, and then obviously everyone also then prefaces it with, well, there's a few things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, you can forgive her because it yeah. doesn't come from a place of malice. Yeah. Do you know? I think everyone has an auntie that's just like Jackie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and an uncle that's just like Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> well, on that bombshell. <laughs> For coming on the podcast. Oh, yeah. thanks so much. Thank, thanks for um, yeah, yeah. thanks for joining us. Oh, I had heaps of fun. Thank yeah. you. Really Assalamualaikum. Oh, salam. Jeez, you did that well. You've been practicing. Did you practice that just for me? No, 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 no. Oh. I listen to a lot of rap music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Was yeah. My pleasure. And Ali, Ali Bombay. Thank you. And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you, Bill Shorten and Tanya Plibersek, for lending us one of your many uh, but few emotive colleagues to talk to and thank you dr ali for joining us and coming up to the top of the hour we have the news bulletin with bruce hitchcock followed by hello sport and until next week my name is errol parker and you have a good one and i'm clancy overall you be kind to each other right now at honda find your kind of value with a low finance rate offer on selected civic hatch and sedan models there's never been a better time to get into a civic so talk to your local dealer and let's help you into a honda today t's and c's apply ends august 31st see website for details